What is crackalackin', Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host, Adam Frommel, or a guest for that matter. I promise these solo pods will not be a regular thing. It is only for this week as my travel schedule is absurd. And Adam and I also recorded a joint mailbag earlier this week only for the audio to be lost to the ether. I did not want you to go without a mailbag this week. And I also didn't want to spurn listeners who actually asked those questions and did not get to hear the answers. So this is going to be a dual mailbag week for us before we get into some bigger pictures to stuff over unders report cards are coming up for the off season, trying to let things develop a little bit more before we go there. And we will of course preview all the teams or as many teams individually with guests, singular podcast as we can before the start of the season. But I'm going to do a two-part mailbag. First part's dropping at some point on Wednesday, August 25th, and the other part will come on August 27th. Had a bunch of questions to get to, so I'm excited to answer them. First and foremost, though, please, please, pretty please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting said podcast. Download all our episodes. That helps a ton. Whether you use iTunes or another platform, please still head over to iTunes. Search Hardwood Knox. Throw us a five-star rating, write a review. Those help us out a ton. The numbers have been stagnant there, even though our episode downloads are, are going up. So help us out there. You can also help us out by following and subscribing to us on YouTube. Search YouTube.com. Hardwood Knox is popping up. We've only been doing that for about two months. We're almost up to 500 subscribers there. So help us get to that threshold, and then help us get to 1,000 as well. Follow us on Twitter, as always, at Hardwood Knox. We're on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. And we're also on TikTok straight at Hardwood Knox. That is all the housekeeping notes I have for you. So let's get to the first part of this mailbag. And these are questions that I've already answered with Adam. Um, we're, I'm doing them again. I want, we did this mailbag live on Locker Room, unless you were one of the, um, you know, dozen or so listeners that were with us during that impromptu Locker Room session late on Monday night. You didn't hear the answers. So there's really, there's really no um, ill, 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 there's really no downside to me going through these right now as I sort of stutter. So let's get to the first question. Aaron Washington asks, how far can the Timberwolves go fully healthy? Adam and I were in lockstep with this. We see them as maybe a fringe play-in team at best. They are incredibly interesting when you just sort of look at their asset base. Having Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, Anthony Edwards. I'm a huge Jaden McDaniels fan. Um, you now have Patrick Beverly, at least for the time being, and it does seem like they're they're going to keep them, uh, keep him. Excuse me. I still deeply, deeply worry about Minnesota's uh, defense. They should be look if they're healthy. They should light the the world on fire offensively. Although I think you can be a little bit concerned with the way that their backup point guard rotation is set up right now. It's essentially Patrick Beverly. Um, unless they bring back Jordan McLaughlin, who showed flashes last year. You can also run stuff through Anthony Edwards, of course. They ran a bunch of stuff in summer league through Jane McDaniels, and he did really well. So maybe there are different elements there. But this team is still, it has holes. And I think that while they can light the world on fire offensively, there might be some depth questions beyond their first five, six, seven guys, maybe. And when you look at the defenders on this team, how many plus defenders are you guaranteed to have? Josh Akogi, assuming his role isn't downsized even more. Maybe Nas Reed, when you're looking at backup centers. Definitely Jaden McDaniels, Patrick Beverly. 
that's, you know, I named four guys there, but that's not exactly great. I think you can bank on, you know, maybe Malik Beasley is like close to average defensively. I think he's always been a little bit overrated there. It's just the physical tools he has on offense. You'd think he'd be a little bit bouncier on defense. Anthony Edwards showed, I would say, glimpses into a player who's not going to suffer through as many off-ball lapses, but he's still too nonchalant, getting back in transition. Um, he's going to take gambles when he's on the strong side that leave his teammates out to dry. And you don't have anyone in the front court that's necessarily going to cover up for Carl Anthony Towns right now, who I still don't think is a terrible defender, but you need someone who could kind of vacillate between guarding the perimeter and protecting the rim. I think Jaden McDaniels comes fairly close there, um, but it does seem that based on Minnesota's acquisition of Torian Prince, who's another player that seems like he's probably overrated on defense and underrated on offense. Um, I'm not sure how sold Minnesota is on Jaden McDaniels as this like permanent four body. Um, feels like they want to maybe groom him as more of a wing. Again, this team is interesting. If you told me they finished uh, in the top six of the Western Conference, I would be honest to God flabbergasted, even when you know baking in for the variance that can be accounted for with the Clippers when they're playing without Kawhi Leonard probably, and then even the Nuggets for however long they're um, without Jamal Murray. Speaking of the Nuggets, longtime listener Miroslav Shook asks, Nikola Jokic is, what does Nikola Jokic's stat line need to look like for him to repeat as an MVP. Now, in theory, I don't think it should have to change. He just averaged 26.4 points, 10.8 rebounds, 8.3 assists, 1.3 steals, shot 60.6% on twos. That is ridiculous when you consider some of the two-pointers he took, including those somber shuffle looks. 38.8% on threes, 86.8% at the foul line. Still put up a fairly good clip on those grenades late in the shot clock last year. If you put up those numbers, you should be in the MVP discussion, assuming your team is is good. I think what's going to happen is there might be a level of voter fatigue with Jokic, even though he's only won once. There was that, I don't want to say it was a sweeping agenda, but there were just people that thought he was this blip of an MVP. I don't think that's the case at all. The real questions I would have first would be, are the Nuggets going to be good enough? Because where are they going to be without Jamal Murray for X amount of games? It's like he misses half or two-thirds of the season. What does he look like upon coming back? If they're not in the top three of the West, his case probably gets a little bit harder to justify when you're going up against LeBron in LA, who seems like he might've gotten the career achievement treatment had he stayed healthy all of last year. Um, And there will just be other candidates that crop up. It could be a Chris Paul or Devin Booker in in Phoenix. Um, Maybe Paul George enters the fold because the Clippers overachieved without Kawhi Leonard, someone in Utah, whether it's Donovan Mitchell or, or Rudy Gobert, if Damian Lillard helps the Portland Trailblazers improve without actually improving their roster, Luka Doncic, of course, in Dallas, there are a bunch of different ways you go. And that's in the West, by the way. We're not even getting into the East, where you have Giannis, you have Joel Embiid. Um, is Tatum due for that type of year in, in Boston? James Harden or Kevin Durant in Brooklyn? I'd be a little bit surprised if it was Kyrie, but two of those three stars for sure. So there are going to be options. Maybe Jimmy Butler in Miami. So that's the competition is going to be fierce. Will the Nuggets be good enough? I will say that if the Nuggets are good enough, Nicole Jokic does have the benefit of that narrative bump again, where it seems like he got it towards the end of last year without Jamal Murray. And now if you go through most of this season without Jamal Murray and the Nuggets are still really good, still in the top three, even if he comes back for the, for the stretch run, that's going to help Jokic. I would counter that with, how healthy will Jokic be? Like, this is someone who has never missed more than nine games in a single season, and he played in all 72 games last year 
when coming off the shortest offseason in professional sports history, the Nuggets, having made it all the way to the conference finals that year, were one of the, the final four teams remaining. So you're talking about an uber short offseason. It's not like Nicole Jokic necessarily plays this super physically demanding style. At the same time, he's a center. He bruises when he's in the post, when he's going up for rebounds. You have a guy who's dribbling the ball up the court at points and just his usage when you look at, you know, his total true usage, just the the amount of offense he's responsible for generating as a passer and a scorer, it's through the roof. And so could there be some wear and tear there? I, I don't know. You know, he's entering his age 26 season. That shouldn't necessarily be the concern, but it's definitely a part of the equation alongside the, the extra competition. Now, if he wants to overcome what I think would be an unfair uh, slight against him, or if people really think that he was sort of this MVP blip, if he averages double digits and assists, that might just be the benchmark as a center that will really take people by surprise. It's not outside the realm of, of possibility that would probably bring him to a triple double average looking, looking at what he does as a a rebounder, but you're not going to have Jamal Murray. You're not necessarily just outfitted with all these different kinds of creators. Yeah. You have Monte Morris, Fukuma Campazzo, Austin Rivers, Will Barton, yada, yada, yada. Those aren't guys that are necessarily going to be tasked with initiating a ton of the offense. Those are your secondary tertiary creator so maybe that's the recipe go the russell westbrook route and average a a triple double um but it it has to be smack you in the face similar to what it was last season because i think he's working against an unfair advantage where i don't know that people realize how good he is in in large part because of the team that he he plays for another nuggets question comes from dr ramblings with a healthy jamal murray what is the nugget ceiling they seem to be constantly disrespected but i think they're one of the three to four teams in the west on the short list Now, I disagree with Adam on this one where he agrees that the Nuggets get disrespected. I don't necessarily see it, which is counterintuitive to me saying that Jokic needs to sort of overcome these obstacles um, conceptually to win MVP again. That's more about him repeating. I think people recognize that if Jamal Murray was healthy, the Nuggets are one of the three or four best title contenders, not just in the West, but in the entire league. I mean, there's the Nets, there's the Bucks, the Lakers, the Suns, the Jazz, and, and then the Nuggets, like you're in that conversation among those six teams to jockey for a position of, yeah, we know the Nets are number one, but then you could unfold any of those other five spots as you see fit. And yeah, you can make cases for other teams like a, uh, let's say a, a Philadelphia, but there's so much uncertainty there with the Ben Simmons situation. So with a healthy Jamal Murray, the Nuggets are title contenders. And I'm not trying to step on the toes of what Zach Lowe had said previously at ESPN, but I had bandied about the idea of picking them as, um, to, to win the title last year after they made the Aaron Gordon trade. And I, after the Murray injury, I ended up going with the Suns. That didn't work out either, but they become a super well-balanced team. That if you have Jamal Murray shot creation, passing next to Jokic, they just have a, a different type of synergy, more so than a one-two punch in the NBA. I'm not saying they're the best one-two punch in the NBA by virtue of top-end talent. I think you have to go with James Harden and Kevin Durant, Anthony Davis, and LeBron would be in there. But just the chemistry between Jokic and Murray is off the charts. And then you just sort of look at having Michael Porter Jr. all of a sudden as this overqualified um, third option on your team. Um, Aaron Gordon, his role on offense gets even easier because we saw him sort of fall off a cliff in the in the postseason. What he did defensively for you, though, where he was guarding a lot of point guards, you become well, a, a lot more balanced there. So they're, they're definitely in that discussion. The question could be, are they still in that discussion? Let's say top three or four teams in the West specifically, if Jamal Murray isn't healthy this season, like let's say 
you know, how many games would Jamal Murray have to miss for you to say that the Nuggets won't have a chance at a top four seed in the West? I don't think there is a number. He could miss all 82. And I still think that Denver could realistically be in the mix. Like, let's look at a Nuggets team without Jamal Murray and count the squads that are definitively better than them this season. I would say the Jazz, the Lakers, and the Suns, and it probably ends there. I know there will be people that want to put the Warriors or the Mavericks, maybe even the Blazers, and it's possible, but the Nuggets would still be, to me, fending for that position. And if you get any sort of regression from, for whatever reason, from Utah or Phoenix, maybe things in LA just don't go according to plan during the regular season, at least while they're trying to fit in Russell Westbrook, maybe his arrival just portends more off nights or LeBron James. So any one of those teams could sort of fall out of the, my top three mentioned. So I think the Nuggets are one of the three to four best teams in the West. I'll say three to five best teams in the West without Jamal Murray, you throw him into that equation and they're just a bona fide contender. There's there's really no other way around it. This question was super interesting. Adam and I had a very lively debate about it previously, so I don't mean to just tease something that you're you're never going to hear unless you were in that locker um, Spotify green room. Excuse me. Uh, but James Chiapuzzo asked, "How well would a team led by Clay Thompson or someone of his archetype do?" This is something I've thought about a lot. Adam doesn't think they would even be close to a playoff team. We both agree that they wouldn't be a title contender. There does need to be some context. Are you talking about Clay Thompson as strictly the number one option? Uh, prime Clay Thompson as your best player? Because it is different if Prime Clay Thompson is, as your best player is the the criteria here. Because then you factor in his defense, and you can envision him maybe not being the number one option on offense. We viewed it as if he was the number one option on offense. There's definitely a cap. I don't know if he has any of those table setting abilities that he really just hasn't flashed. Adam says that we just haven't seen enough self-creation from him to bank on his being able to play that type of role. I've countered with the fact that even in the Kevin Durant years, like his role has been pretty steady. It's 80% of his looks between 80 and 85% are coming off assists. And he's going to get you as a cutter, as a spot up shooter, as a guy coming around, you know, and shooting in, in motion, but we've seen him be able to operate in the post. He shot fairly well on pull-up threes for his career. And, you know, when they won their first title in 2014, 2015, uh, fewer than 70% of his looks came off assists. Now that's still not, that's still a pretty large number to have uh, of buckets to come off assists, but it's like not astronomical. And so I would argue that Clay Thompson probably has more self-creation capacity than we've seen in his career because the Warriors have never needed that for needed for him to tap into that. It was all of a sudden they got really good with Andre Godala coming uh, then they put the ball even more in Draymond Green's hand and that 20 uh, in Draymond Green's hands during the 2015, 2016 season. Then you have Kevin Durant coming right in and now you have Clay Thompson missing the past two years. I think it's a super interesting question. Uh, someone com mentioned in the chat, this is from Shawnee J that maybe it would be the Reggie Miller Pacers. As Adam pointed out, Reggie Miller was responsible for more off the dribble work than Clay Thompson, but we just haven't seen Clay have to be in that situation yet. And so there is has to be that layer of imagination here where you're trying to apply his skill, what you've seen into a different type of role and maybe plumb something that he hasn't had the opportunity to explore just yet. Again, I don't think you're a title contender with Clay Thompson as your number one option, but I think he's more than capable of being the number one option for a team that's like, you know, let's say a Minnesota Timberwolves level, a fringe play-in team. So I don't think you're looking at the worst team in the NBA. You're probably looking at a, a lower tier 
peak playoff team. And that's, you, you know, you don't want to rebuild around that player. And that, look, that player just might not exist anymore. We have to see what Clay looks like whenever he comes back this upcoming season. But it, it the questions like those are, are really fascinating to me to, to think about. Let's get to, we have two Grizzlies questions here. We all know that you love the Grizzlies questions. Uh, Dagra 21S, is Brandon Clark a future NBA starting center? I would have to say no at this point. I don't want to discount what he did as a rookie when you're looking at his floater, really flashed some range, has some defensive mobility. His sophomore season was a mega disappointment. Uh, Memphis basically had him out of the rotation at points by the end of the season for them. His jumper looked like buffering internet is how I've described it. Uh, if anyone was around for dial up and can remember those like, like static noises, that's just felt like it was the, the motion took forever. And there was just like this gigantic pause um, at different like points of it. I don't know what happened there. And I also just don't know what type of role he's set up for next season. When you look at the roster, I guess you could argue that there'll be a more prominent one for him because Jonas Valanciunas is gone you probably don't have as much equity invested in Steven Adams, even though he's under contract for the next two years, but you do have Jaron Jackson jr. If you want to explore him at the five, you have Xavier, Xavier Tillman as well. There should still be minutes for uh, Brandon Clark to play, but if you want to give Anderson, Kyle Anderson looks at the four, Jared Culver looks at the four, that's going to squeeze some of his minutes too, because Brandon Clark has played some four in the past, but I was just wildly discouraged by his his sophomore season. Hopefully he'll be able to bounce back. But if you had to ask me to fast forward three years from now, see where Brandon Clark is, he's up. Do I think he'll still be in the NBA? My guess would be yes. Is he starting for a team? Not a good one. I would think that he would be coming off the bench in that situation. We had another Grizzlies related question um, from Kim, basically saying, let's talk about the Grizzlies guys. And this look, the trigger point here is Chris Fedor of Cleveland.com reported that Kyle Anderson and Dylan Brooks are available for the right price. Um, I buy that. That might seem a little bit weird given how much Dylan Brooks did for you on defense last year, especially sort of his coming out party in the postseason for people that hadn't watched a ton of the Grizzlies. You're also looking at him entering the first year of a three-year, uh, $35 million extension, so why give up on him now? Um, Kyle Anderson, similarly, this is just someone who showed that he could hit threes at a 36% clip for the entire year. It does a lot for you on defense isn't super quick, knows how to use space to his advantage, a quirky, herky-jerky game on offense, but he's a mid-range savant, shot over 50% from mid-range this past year. If you're the Grizzlies and you're trying to compete now, why would you get rid of either of them? Are the Grizzlies trying to compete now? I'm not saying that they're tanking, but everything they've done over the offseason, from taking on Steven Adams' money um, to the trade with the Clippers to cut that Eric Bledsoe partial guarantee from next year while just taking on immediate money, from drafting Zaire Williams at number 10, who was billed as a project. Then after watching him in summer league, I'm just wondering if he is as much as a project. He looked, he looked good in summer league. He needs to probably put on more weight. We could say that about a ton of the rookies right now. Everything they've done though, points to a team that is just prioritizing the, the longer haul. And so let's look at Kyle Anderson entering free agency next summer. Are you going to pay to keep him around. You're not a glamour market. So your cap space that you do seem to be conserving, even though you took on Steven Adams money, you got rid of Jonas Alanchunas, who would have commanded a new contract after the season, potentially worth more than the $70.9 million that Steven Adams is going to make in 22, 2023. I don't want to spin that as, oh, the Grizzlies were like subtly cutting money there by doing that because you could have just let Jonas Alanchunas walk for nothing. Uh, but yeah, 
So that, but still based on the picks that they've taken on or just amassed over the past two off seasons, having Utah's in uh, 2020, what is they have Utah's in 2022. It's protected, loosely protected Golden State pick in 2024. Um, they have that LA Lakers pick now in 2022, I believe, uh, after the, the deal with the Pelicans moving up in the draft for Isaiah Williams. So they just seem so concerned about the longer term. And, if, and by extension, trying to get as many bites at the co-star Apple for John Morant as possible, probably because I don't know that they could be sure that Jaron Jackson Jr. is that guy. I'm not reading too much in the last season um, when he missed a ton of time, came back, and it just felt like he never got his bearings about him. But I don't think you could look at him and say, that's definitely the number two guy on a really ridiculously good team. You know you have the number one guy, that type of building block in John Morant. Is Jaron Jackson that second guy? I don't know. So now they've they've maybe expanded Desmond Bain's role. They're going to give Zaire Williams a chance. They've accumulated these other picks to either use in a draft or maybe go out and strike a trade if the right player becomes available for them. Why pay Kyle Anderson, especially when he's going to be in demand around the league? Maybe they could. I'm not saying they shouldn't. Uh, Kyle Anderson's a really good player, but he's entering an expiring deal. You can even make the same case with the Anthony Melton, even though his name hasn't cropped up. Like maybe you should shop these guys around just to sort of see what they're going to get. In Dylan Brooks's case, I just think relying on him is an increasingly fragile existence. You can bank on him just being a really physical defender, but offensively, there's going to be high variance in his performances from night to night. He can be gritty. Excuse me. As I said, it is now you know 4.48 in the morning on the East Coast while recording this, but Dylan Brooks going to give you some, a physical presence on offense too, can really bully his way to baskets, but he's also going to have like that prime Michael Jordan shot selection without the results on certain nights. And so if you can sell high on him now uh, leading into the season, when the last impression of him is someone who was playing at an all defense level for much of last year, why not at least look at it? Can you get another top pick? Are you maybe going to clear some money off your books for next summer? Um, get a player who maybe feels more of a need and the other element here for these two guys would be if you are more invested in the longer term, moving either one of them is just going to open up more minutes for Desmond Bain and Zaire Williams on the wings. Uh, Dylan Moving Dylan Brooks probably more so than Kyle Anderson because he can play two, three, four. Um, and Brooks, I don't really think you want to play him up uh, that high. And so you're looking at more of two of three, which is where you're going to put Zaire Williams and, and Desmond Bain, I would think. So unless you really think that Dylan Brooks is the secondary ball handler for this team long-term, which I would argue he is not, why not look at, at what you could get for him via trade? I'd be curious to see what the market is for these guys. Brooks specifically, you can envision him fitting on a lot of teams, but it needs to be somewhere where I, don't, I think ideally you're not relying on him to be even more than your third or fourth offensive guy. And I'd probably just creep it down more so to fourth there Atlanta next to Trey Young where they have John Collins and just some of these other wings that would be super interesting they do have Cam Reddish floating around up there and they're a team that's interested in winning now just imagining his defense next to to Trey Young that would that would certainly be a fit uh Boston eh, just go, going through all the teams here Brooklyn's not gonna have the assets Charlotte for a uh, Kyle Anderson or Dylan Brooks. I probably might like Anderson there a little bit better, but it doesn't really matter. They don't have a ton that they can trade at the moment after extending Terry Rozier. They have like these bigger salaries and Terry Rozier was a bigger salary to begin with. Um, Chicago's already done all they can do. I, I, Cleveland's been floated around for Dylan Brooks. I wouldn't hate it. Um, just another defensive presence on the wings for them. They have Isaac Okoro and then 
Their second best perimeter defender is probably Larry Nance Jr., which is a which is a problem. Uh, Dallas could probably use either one of these guys. They do need more defense on this team. A Kyle Anderson shot creation would be interesting, even though he doesn't space the floor in a traditional traditional sense. I might be more intrigued by Dylan Brooks for the defense he would bring there. Dylan Brooks's defense in Denver would be really interesting. I just don't know what deal you're building around there. Even if we're getting into the, you know, December aughts, like is Memphis at all interested in bull bull and then a distant uh, first round pick. Would you move Monte Morris in that deal? How much does it actually interest Memphis? Um, He could be a solid backup point guard. He's entering the first of a three year, $27 million extension. So something like PJ Dozier and Monte Morris for, and a second for Dylan Brooks, like does that get the the needle moving there? I, I honestly don't know. Uh, Dylan Brooks in Detroit, maybe that could be semi interesting. I just don't know who they're going to want to give up in that scenario. Golden State, they're more built for a blockbuster trade. Houston, I don't really think either one of these players makes a ton of sense. They have enough sort of flyer defensive guys, and Dylan Brooks isn't super young to begin with. Um, don't like either of these players in Indiana. I don't think this is the season for Los Angeles to go after either one of these guys. And I question whether they actually have the assets to get either of them. Although Anderson would be in the absence of Kawhi Leonard, very different players, but would be super interesting there. The Lakers look, the Lakers can't make a real trade right now. They're not going to trade Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, or LeBron James. Their fourth highest paid player at the moment is Kendrick Nunn, who they signed. Um, and can't not trade until mid-December. And then after that, the fifth highest paid player and then most likely player removed is Pau Gasol, Pau Gasol, Marc Gasol, who is making under $3 million. So, yeah. Miami, Dylan Brooks would be right up their alley, sort of some defensive grit without any guaranteed shooting. Um, maybe even Kyle Anderson fits that mold. I just don't, like, the neither of those two are going to fit that bill there. A lot of people, someone mentioned that they want to see Dylan Brooks in Milwaukee. Interesting fit. Milwaukee just doesn't have the assets to get it done. Minnesota could be fun. Uh, could you argue that with Anthony Edwards there, is there is it worth going with Malik Beasley for a Dylan Brooks straight up swap? I would think that Memphis probably needs to include someone or something else there, but Dylan Brooks could just help them out a ton. Or if they want to acquire Kyle Anderson to play the four, I don't think that's necessarily the type of guy they're looking for, but they're one of the rare teams that can talk themselves into both players. New Orleans could really use Dylan Brooks um how much younger does memphis want to get uh you know or how much let's say if does memphis want to get like can there be something built around Nikhil alexander walker you're not going to get trey murphy from new orleans are you going to get one of the other first round picks that they can move out of this i don't know that you're going to have any interest in, in a jackson hayes that could be interesting they also new orleans might not want to touch dylan brooks now that they have josh hart back under contract don't see the Knicks as a viable destination for either. They can't. They're one of the teams that just can't make a real trade for quite some time. Right now, Dylan Brooks might fit the gritty defensive mold, um, but they probably need more of a true wing and floor spacer, and neither Anderson or Brooks fits that mold. Brooks would come closest, but again, just too much variance on the, the offensive end. Oklahoma City for neither, just at the point in the stage of their rebuild, though I would be intrigued by Dylan Brooks there. Ditto for Orlando. I wouldn't be intrigued by either of these guys there. That team still needs a, a ton of shooting. Philly, Kyle Anderson, just because of a shot creation, or even Dylan Brooks at this point, like guys who maybe are going to give you more looks and crunch time in the playoffs, but you're not going to put together like some of your best assets to go after these guys. Phoenix, I would kill. Kyle Anderson to Phoenix is one of my favorite scenarios. They do have Jalen Smith to start building out something. Um, and then there's 
some of their salary filler wouldn't be eligible to later in the season, but they can do some immediate things if Memphis is willing to take on Darius Sarge. Is that too much, though, if you're Phoenix? For Kyle Anderson, I think you could certainly um, argue, even though Darius Sarge's injury is injured, yes, if you're giving up Jalen Smith in that deal. Dylan Brooks could really work for them, too, because it feels like they need that other sort of bigger wing ball handler. I don't know if Dylan Brooks is qualifies a bigger wing, but he certainly is physical as one um that would be a team though to watch for either one of these guys to me like one to really keep your eyes on perhaps as we get more so into the season dylan brooks in portland would be huge but i just don't even know if he's he's big enough uh and then who are you moving for that like okay you have Derek jones jr's expiring contract like we were attaching first round picks here and then you've now lost like Derek jones jr can at least go up against some fours i don't know that brooks is going to give you that you already have so much money invested in the six you know the under six four club with lillard mccollum and powell and are you even going to trade a first round pick not when you're not sure what's going to happen with dame dylan brooks in sacramento man imagine having him halbert and davion mitchell on the same team i don't know if it would cost you davion mitchell to get brooks i wouldn't do it if it did um, if you could build something around Buddy Heald and other stuff, or is Memphis intrigued by Marvin Bagley? I would love to see Dylan Brooks in Sacramento, though. Still a team after finishing dead last in points allowed per 100 possessions last year. That could really stand to beef up its defense. San Antonio, I have no idea where they're going, um, so I'm not going to advocate for a Kyle Anderson reunion or going after Dylan Brooks, and they seem to have enough guys just along those sides. Uh, ditto for Toronto. I, I think they're more concerned with like existing in the middle now unless they're going to actually move pascal siakam but they don't have a need for any of these guys really when you look at their defense already although like if you want to feel the five-man lineup of fred van fleet dylan rooks scotty barnes og ananobi and pascal siakam i think you'd probably let up like zero points per game that's something to consider dylan brooks or even kyle anderson in utah would probably go a long way just guys sturdier defenders maybe more physical defenders than a joe ingles right now or a Bojan Bogdanovic. obviously that help you in the playoffs just don't know what you're giving up you've already leveraged so much of your first round pick future part of which is, is going to memphis already and they're not going to have a ton of interest in a jordan clarkson or joe ingles given where they're at in their development and you just shouldn't be moving royce o'neill if you're utah uh washington you know, I wouldn't hate to see any of these those guys there, really, Dylan Brooks or Kyle Anderson. And Washington is sort of like winnish now. If it's planning on keeping Bradley Beal, even though it moved Russell Westbrook, I just don't know who you're giving up for for one of those guys. Um, do you consider moving a moving a future pick? Probably more so for Dylan Brooks, just because he's under contract. But then you still really need to trust him. Um, this team does feel like it needs maybe a little bit more defense. Um, and if Dylan Brooks is there to go along with Spencer Dinwiddie and Contavious Caldwell Pope, but even Kyle Kuzma, who's improved positionally um, on defense, there's a lot of different wing stuff you could do there. So I just went through the entire league on the Dylan Brooks, Kyle Anderson fits. You're welcome for that. I would predict that by the trade deadline, at least one of these two players is gone just based off Memphis's direction. Adam posed that it'll be an all or nothing proposition because Memphis will look to sell them both if they're not good at all but if they again look like they're going to obliterate expectations and make the playoffs they will be much less likely to to do so and might just want to keep them but that's interesting food for thought my official prediction would be though uh, i think at least one of them is going to be gone by by the uh trade deadline from jake g does miles bridges pj or kelly Oubre at the four Slash PJ or Plumlee at the five make more sense in the starting lineup for the Hornets. I'm assuming Miles and Plumlee are getting the starting nods, but more curious, what would be the most effective starting five? 
Um, I would go, I might be more interested in knowing the closing lineup for this team, in which case I think you go with LaMelo Ball, Terry Rozier, Gordon Hayward, and then Miles and still PJ Washington. Um, I think you could mix and match and throw Kelly Oubre Jr. in there. My only three guarantees for the closing lineup, I think, are Hayward, LaMelo Ball, and Terry Rozier. And look, you can say what you want about Rozier's four-year, $96.2 million extension. We talked about it on a previous podcast. Uh, he was sensational for them in crunch time without having to be the primary ball handler. So you need that floor spacing ability on the court in those moments. If I'm going to guess for the starting lineup, they did start a traditional center for most of last year. And I, I would think that then means that Mason Plumley is there. You know, you're going to have LaMelo, Terry Rozier, and then Gordon Hayward, if he's healthy, where's that fourth spot go? They have miles bridges coming off the bench a ton. Do they maybe trust him now more so than PJ Washington? Um, I think it makes more sense to me to have PJ Washington that lineup just because I think Miles Bridges is going to give you a little bit more shot creation coming off the bench. And I think that's something that you might actually need now that Devontae Graham is, is gone. I'm not saying that Miles Bridges is going to replace uh, the facilitation that Devontae Graham brought you, even in a, in a down year, if he wants to run lineups by himself and look like, you know, Malik Monk isn't there either. So you're not running all these dual guard lineups, but your, your backup point guard at this point is Ishmith Ishmith. And do you try, or maybe James Booknight if you think that he's going to facilitate. So just having someone else who, you know, miles bridges last year, I think a lot of people, including myself, probably viewed him as more as a straight away score, just show that there was more directionality to his game and can do more stuff with the ball in his hand. So I, th- I think it'll end up being PJ Washington, Mason Plumley. Gordon Hayward, Terry Rozier on the mellow ball, but we're still going to see a ton of small ball. And I think the Kelly Oubre Jr. signing kind of hinted at that. It was definitely a matter of opportunity, but he's someone else who could play the four. And I would look, I can even, if you're willing to bench Terry Rozier for moments, you can kind of play small while also being big with just run the mellow at point. And you have Gordon Hayward, Kelly Oubre Jr., PJ Washington, and Miles Bridges. I wouldn't think that becomes like one of your crutches or even your starting lineup, but it is an option that, that you could, uh, that you could certainly roll with in, in that scenario. Let's, let's end that here. That's going to, we'll call that part one of the mailbag. We've got through the first batch of questions um, from people and have a bunch more that I will get to in the next segment until next time though. Thank you all for listening. I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, the still criminally unsigned Frank Nielakina. 